0: Police violence has made the headlines in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter movement, the repression in Belarus, or even the pandemic. Neil Smelter is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel and Degrading Treatments. He's with us today to speak about what causes police violence and how we can participate in solving this problem.
1: The basic principles that govern the use of force in law enforcement is that the the use of force has to always pursue a lawful purpose, and then the use of force has to be necessary to achieve that lawful purpose. You cannot use more force than is necessary for that purpose. And also, um, uh, the harm likely to result from that use of force for the perpetrator uh, or for uh, bystanders or even for the officers has to be proportionate. Uh, compared to the importance of what we're trying to do. So you cannot use force, even if it's necessary to achieve a lawful purpose, if the harm would be disproportionate to what we're actually trying to achieve. I'll give you an extreme example, um, uh, or two extreme examples to illustrate that. So if, for example, a hostage taker is uh, is threatening to kill a hostage, then, uh, you know, it's a lawful purpose, obviously, to try to save the hostage's life, and it may be necessary to use force or even lethal force against the hostage taker to save that person's life. And even if you have, in the extreme case, to kill the hostage taker, it would be proportionate in order to save the life of the hostage. One of the rare cases where even intentional lethal force could be lawful. But if you have a, a child stealing a chewing gum in a store and then running away, maybe as a police officer, well, it would be lawful to stop the child and you know ask it to return the chewing gum. Um, so you have a lawful purpose, but maybe you're not fast enough to run after the child. So the only way to do that would be to use your firearm. You know That's necessary if you want to stop it. If you don't use a firearm, it will run away. So it would be necessary to use your firearm, but it's not proportionate, because what you're trying to protect the interest of, you know, that chewing gum being stolen, to return that chewing gum does not justify putting someone's life at risk. So these are the three basic principles, lawful purpose, necessity, and proportionality. And then there's an overarching, what we're calling an operational principle of precautions, which means that in the training, in the equipment, in the preparation of law enforcement operations, um, you always have to try to avoid, to the maximum extent possible, the use of force.
0: How has police violence evolved in the last years?
1: I think what we can see in the last perhaps 20 years is an increasing militarization of police. And uh, I would say that's almost globally, uh, worldwide. And I think that that's connected to you know, 9-11 and the, the aftermath of this, the so-called war on terror, um, which uh, blurred the distinction between war and peace, because clearly there's a difference between military forces fighting a war and police forces you know, enforcing the law at home. But with this war on terror, um, there's this kind of presumption that there's a constant conflict or threat everywhere in far countries so far away in conflict areas but even at home in a shopping center you could be surrounded by enemies basically so this has led to a militarization of police in terms of equipment their training the rules of engagement they have and and even look at their outfits you know uh, in many countries around the world police forces today they look you know they're dressed in black with combat boots and they look really like special forces they cover their faces they remove their name tags it's a far cry from what police officers looked like 20 years ago where they were you know dressed in blue perhaps and in a much more accessible manner and much less hostile appearance it may seem like I'm focusing on superficial expressions here, but I think it's important. It's an important factor that expresses what has happened, how police identify themselves, and how they see the population. I think we have moved away from the identity, by and large, of police officers as serving and protecting the population towards a police force that increasingly regards parts of the population as a potential enemy and that they have to fight against with the same attitude as if they were in a war.
0: Is there a problem with the sort of weapons police are using?
1: In recent years, we see that there's a priority given to so-called non-lethal or less lethal weapons, such as, you know, electric shock devices, tasers. The motivation certainly is a good one, that we're trying to remove or reduce equipment that might have lethal consequences. But sometimes if this is not carefully handled, it can have the contrary effect because police officers are now less afraid to use those weapons because they're less likely to cause death. Sometimes you see those videos where police officers use tasers. They walk up to a person, they ask them a question, and if they they don't understand the question, they immediately taser them. they wouldn't immediately pull their gun and shoot them, you know, but but they immediately pull their taser and then they say, they, well, you know, the person didn't respond to my request. So I was justified in feeling threatened. It lowers the threshold for the use of force, but it does that. In fact, it doesn't lower it in law, you see. And, and that's very, very important that the abuse of these types of devices is being punished. I think about two years back, there was an investigative report by Reuters uh, on the use of tasers inside detention centers by by U.S. law enforcement. And we could see that people that are, you know, that are being tied to chairs, uh, that they're using tasers on them. It's very important that we are aware that changing the type of equipment can backfire also. And it's not to say that we shouldn't prioritize less lethal weapons. We should, but we need to accompany those changes with with strict regulations. We have a huge responsibility in how we train, equip, and guide our law enforcement officers so they can serve the population and protect the population and the use of force really being a measure of last resort when it's absolutely necessary and proportionate to protect a lawful purpose.
0: Has the pandemic had an effect on police violence?
1: In terms of police violence, it has actually exacerbated it. Because now here, the threat that we're facing is a virus. Well, you can't police a virus, you know, you can't. So you can only police people. Uh, and, And so here, the people, the potentially infected people are being looked at as the threat which is obviously it's not their fault that they're infected and they're not criminals, but they're much more perceived as an enemy, as a threat, as a danger than as a beneficiary of the police services. And so, you know, uh, when you see those pictures going around the world where uh, police are using violence to dissolve unlawful assemblies, and they base that on the argument that, you know, we have to enforce COVID-19 social distancing rules, in order to protect the population. And then you see those people lying on the ground, blood-covered faces from police violence, and you're asking yourself, are police really trying to protect these people from COVID by beating them up? Somehow, that pandemic has created imperatives that sometimes have led to the police forgetting their original mission. It is their job to communicate to the population the importance of these rules and the social distancing rules to the population. It's not their job to to fight the population as an enemy. And I can see the tension between the threat of the the COVID pandemic and and the uh, uh, the freedom of assembly. There is a tension there, but I don't think that the The primary reaction should be a forceful one there's a need of communication, we can see it even in in prison conditions right where. Yes, obviously there is a necessity to try to avoid the spread of the pandemic through the prison, but then in many prisons of the world inmates depend on their families having access to them, not only for you know social contact but even for their food and their medical supplies because the prisons cannot supply them and so if you if you prohibit those contacts then very quickly the tensions rise in the prison and lead to violent incidents
0: Are there any other factors that encourage police violence?
1: It's very different in various countries and even various parts of countries, you know, in cities or in, in rural areas, you know, poor neighborhoods and rich neighborhoods and so on. The main problem is when parts of the population start to be considered as enemies. And, you know, it can be the persecution of dissidents in, you know, more kind of authoritarian countries. Uh, it can be the the discrimination against migrants, or you know, based on race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, you know, language, what have you. As soon as one part of the population is, as we say, othered, when they're marginalized and excluded, they're not being seen as part of the constituency of the, the police force. Then the police force looks at them as enemies. These are the bad guys, and that's always a very, very bad uh, situation. That's what contributes to violence being used in a discriminatory manner. On top of this, a second kind of uh, element I see, a second factor is when political leaders adopt, you know, for reasons of popularity, they adopt these kinds of tough on crime policies, law and order kind of slogans, which you, obviously everybody appreciates law and order, but, you know, when you're tough on crime, which is a policy that, that prioritizes uh, arrests, use of violence, even for petty criminals that encourages the police to look at these people as enemies and not as citizens who have you know perhaps in difficulties and therefore have been tempted to engage in, in crimes and you know drugs and so on. And the third element that I think is very, very important is when we have lack of independent, effective oversight and accountability. So as soon as you have impunity, for excessive use of force, it becomes a vicious cycle. It becomes a police culture of violence uh, because police they're not expecting to be held to account for abuse. And they, they have very stressful functions. I think we have to recognize that as well. I mean, police officers very often come in situations where they don't know what to expect, where someone might turn violent, pull a gun on them or something. So they are in a very tense situation they have to be extremely resilient and well-trained and well-guided and supported and equipped in order to uh, avoid the use of force. So that's also very, very important that we have adequate training, adequate equipment, you know, protective gear in a crowd control situation is very important because it allows you to endure a certain level of, of resistance by the population or even aggression by the population without having to use excessive force against them, because you have shields, you may you may be able to you have enough staff to control the situation. Um, so all of these things are very, very important.
0: Legally, what can be done in a case of police violence?
1: The first measure to take is certainly to try to go through the complaints and mechanisms that are provided in the country. Uh, so it can be an internal complaints procedure within the police force or the, the Ministry of Interior. It can be a domestic uh, judicial complaint system uh, or, you know, an, an person. I mean, what depending on the Human Rights Commission, depending on what system is offered nationally. That's certainly the kind of the first uh, uh, resort. Um, and then if that doesn't uh, yield any results, then... There are these kind of international systems, the regional human rights systems, the anti-torture mechanisms, the domestic ones and the international ones, including uh, also my own mandate, can be, can be accessed. The advantage of my mandate is that uh, it's not tied to a treaty. Um, so any, in any country, even if they haven't ratified any human rights treaties, the victims can notify my office of those, of those cases and I can intervene in those countries. And apart from that, NGOs, civil society, local ones, are absolutely crucial. Uh, They are the ones who can very often uh, collect this information and, you know, systematize it and report to uh, the international mechanisms or report to the media and are kind of the the memory of of the systemic problem that very often uh, arises in those contexts. So uh, that's very important then to create the public pressure.
0: How much do we really know about police violence?
1: I think that by and large, you know, only the tip of the iceberg is known uh, and only the tip of the tip of the iceberg is adequately addressed. Uh, So most of the cases of police violence are not adequately addressed, unfortunately. And I think that that needs to change. That's why it's, it's difficult to address the systemic problem of police violence, which is never just you know, a few bad apples, but it's more of a kind of a bad orchard you know, <laughs> where you have a, a wrong, a misguided police culture. You have to address it at that level to change the culture. You cannot address it through complaints about every single case of police violence. I mean, by all means, victims should complain just to create the pressure to, create public awareness of what's going on, but we know how difficult it is because police officers operate in very difficult circumstances where they need a margin of appreciation. So it's very difficult for a judge, for example, or anyone, uh, also myself, you know, to determine whether the use of force was adequate or not. Uh, in some cases are absolutely grotesque and they're clear, Uh, But very often, the police officer can just say, you know, uh, well, you know, I felt threatened, the person made a sudden move. uh, And we rarely have a video recording of what really happened. And if again, the the person gets killed, there's no witness around to actually tell a different story. Even if there are witnesses around, you know, in a poor neighborhood, then you have this kind of discriminatory attitudes very often where judges and police forces say, well, you know, we can't trust those witnesses because they're criminals anyway, and so on. You know, so you have these kinds of prejudice that works against finding the truth. As soon as you do have clear evidence, and I think one of the most uh, dramatic cases in recent uh, history, clearly, is George Floyd being, you know, strangled to death by police officers in the U.S. Because we had that video, there was no possibility to to escape a trial in the end. But that happened because we had that evidence. And, and that, that's very important because the first statement before that video leaked to the press, the first statement of the police force there was that George Floyd res- resisted arrest and that during uh, the overpowering, he had I, I think a medical failure, a heart failure or something like this. This would have become the official statement if had we not had that video that proves the contrary. The reality really is that we do need a change of police culture. We need absolute independent oversight and transparency and accountability of these forces. We cannot rely on internal complaints mechanisms within the police force, because the police force, they have the tendency to close their ranks and to protect each other. Not, not because they're bad people. I mean, it's a natural human reaction in any group you try to protect each other, especially police officers that you know, work together in dangerous situations. So we need an independent outside oversight. And in many countries, the problem is that those oversight mechanisms are within the police or at least within the Ministry of Interior. And the Minister of Interior, the minister, who is the boss of the police, but also the boss of the oversight mechanism, wants to be re-elected in the next election. So he, he or she doesn't have any interest in having the commission, uh, the oversight mechanism, finding that his or her police force actually tortured someone uh, or used excessive force. So we, we have a conflict of interest.
0: What would be ways to reduce police violence?
1: We cannot have, you know, leniency... Uh, when police clearly exceed uh, you know, the, the kind and, and degree of force that is, is adequate in, in the circumstances. Again, we need to be realistic. We cannot judge situations with the luxury of hindsight, when the police officer doesn't know whether the person who is screaming at them is perhaps armed, and afterwards we find out he wasn't armed, but he didn't know that in the moment. So we have to be fair in in judging these situations but we also have to train police officers and this is the second element to train them to in de-escalation right rather than escalating situations very often we see that police officers are afraid themselves the george floyd case is probably a good example george floyd was a huge man uh, much bigger than the three police officers he resisted getting out of the car because he was afraid he was afraid he had had bad experiences before, but the police officers don't know that. <laughs> you know, he's resisting. And now they ha- had a very poor handling of the situation. Had they been better trained and guided to use de escalatory methods to explain to George Floyd, I mean, in a calm voice, look, we're not going to do anything bad. We can come out of the car slowly. Please don't make any, you know, fast movements so we know what's happening where your friends were not here to threaten you. You don't lose anything by taking a bit more time. There was no time pressure. He, he didn't, you know, threaten them. We can't keep training police officers as if they were a military force that are operating in a hostile environment. So the police culture and the identity and, and who they consider to be their boss or who, whom are they actually serving that's very, very important. So I think that's really what we need to focus on. And then if something bad happens, we need uh, the oversight mechanisms and the accountability mechanisms to ensure that uh, abuse does have consequences, because that also does have a, obviously a, a deterring factor.
0: What can we do as individuals to change things?
1: It's important that we don't consider the police to be an enemy, <laughs> because they're not. They're human beings. They have, uh, you know, they're trying to to do their job. In the big majority of cases, they're trying to do it well. Um, And the manner in which they identify themselves, the conduct they show, it really depends very much on on us as a society, what we expect from the police, uh, what we expect from our politicians. Do we vote for politicians because they promise to be tough on crime and to against all those bad guys you know they're dealing with drugs in the streets or are we voting for politicians who say you know yes we have big socioeconomic economic problems uh, that cause you know uh, drug dependency and so on we'll have to address those problems we have to have police in the streets so uh, people that feel you know threatened or forced into prostitution and so on they can talk to us so we can try to help them and find safe solutions What's the narrative that we support, and that we vote for? That's very important because in the end these people will govern us and they will tell the police what to do and the police will then execute those orders. And we shouldn't be surprised if in the end the, the police considers us to be the enemy if we're voting for politicians that, that are divisive in their rhetorics and their narratives. We have to alert the public that it is their job to tell the people that govern them how they want to be governed.